regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi listeners, this is Datacast, where I hold long-form conversation with other practitioners to unpack the narrative journeys of their career. My guest today is Tarus Akawa, is one of the leading experts in leveraging data for exponential growth with over 10 years experience in the field. After graduating with a degree in computer engineering from Carnegie Mellon in 2011, he became the first data engineer on the analytics team at Salesforce. Data was in its infancy and the log metric framework which Tarus built was critical in allowing Salesforce to analyze data across customers and provide benchmark across different industry and verticals. Most recently, he led data for WeWork yeah, we work leverage data to be able to grow 10 times in three years, supporting a footprint of more than 800 offices in more than 120 cities in more than 23 countries with over 12,000 employees, making it one of the fastest growing companies in the world. And in fact, Tyros actually scaled the data organization from two to more than 100, as well as the unique approach allowed them to stay lean while supporting every functional area of the business. In 2019, he moved to China to help establish the Asian operation, but we work and focus on the hyper-growing Chinese market. And at the time of this conversation, he's the co-founder and CEO of FireX, and we'll talk about that in our conversation. So yeah, Taros, glad to have you on the show. Hey, James, thanks so much for having me on the show. I'm looking forward to being here and hopefully adding some value to your audience. Fabulous. So why doing the homework for our conversation? I believe that you were born in India and then you later went to the US for college. Can you share a bit about your upbringing and your decision to study abroad? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I grew up in a very entrepreneurial family in India. My mom had a very early e-commerce business. So, you know, tech and sort of computer science, I was raised in an environment where that was very normal. And, you know, since I had the opportunity, you know, my parents were able to sort of send me abroad. I wanted to go there because, you know, back in the early 2000s, the sort of computer science educational systems in India were just not as um, advanced as America. And I think till date, America is really known as the educational center of the world. So the decision to go abroad for computer science was an easy one. And sort of fortunately, my parents could afford to send me there. Yeah, for sure. And I'm just curious, like, how did you become interested in computer science at the first place? (laughs) That's a pretty easy question. You know, on the first day of ninth grade, we were given our books in advance and I picked up the book and started reading it and had mm-hmm. read half of the book before first day of class. And, you know, I'd never been so passionate and excited about something. So it was extremely clear since pretty early on that computer science and sort of software is where my dress lies. Yeah, thanks for sharing that context. And so you go to the US and you went to Carnegie Mellon for your undergrad and you got a degree in company engineering and I believe you also take a lot of classes in economics and computer science as well. How was your overall academic experience at CMU? And also what were some of your favorite classes that you took? It's a really difficult question to answer because I did not study at all in college. 
<laughs> you know, sort of growing up in, in India, I lived in a very sheltered environment. And when I finally went abroad, I had all this freedom and I totally, it went to my head and I had no idea how to manage it. So I was the worst student ever. And I probably only graduated by a sure combination of dumb luck and the fact that I had probably coded for a few thousand hours before getting to college. Mm. Um, you know, my favorite classes I took were, you know, I took some classes which were really fun and enjoyable. I liked algorithms. I, you know, I, I liked the typical coding classes. I actually ended up doing more of the electrical engineering side of things. But what I did do in college, which was really valuable, is I worked on a research project by the Parallel Data Lab. So I think Google had given CMU a bunch of servers and you know, we had one of the first Hadoop instances at Carnegie Mellon. And I worked on a project where we were uh, working with astrologers and we built this way of indexing the stars in the sky and basically cataloging them. And then, you know, the app SkyMap is sort of Google app on Android where you point your phone towards the sky and it shows you what stars you're looking at. Sort of based on the same algorithm which we had developed in 2007, 2008, which we had developed in 2008. Mm-hmm. So that was probably the most interesting thing I did in college. And, uh, you know, sort of spending time on the early Hadoop days, actually building an application was something probably I remember most out of college. I see. Less so about the actual studying in school, but more about the hands on particular research experience that you got a chance to get involved with. I'm, I'm sure, you know, all the coursework and the professors and everyone else is incredible. Uh, it's just not something due to where I was in life at that point I took advantage of. Mm, I see. Yeah. So thanks for bringing that part about the working at the Parallel Data Lab. And I think having that hands-on experience working with that early system was really kind of opening up to a little interest in data engineering, I was supposed and so after you finished CMU, you became the first data engineer on the analytics team at Salesforce. I'm curious, like, how could you describe the state of data infrastructure at Salesforce when you joined? Good question. It was non-existent. You know, I actually joined Salesforce as a performance engineer. There was no data engineering title back mm-hmm. in 2011 when I was out of college. You know, we kind of very quickly figured out software engineering performance wasn't really my cup of tea. Like, Working on a small feature in like a small product is obviously extremely valuable, but not something which I found that interesting. And uh, at that time, no one was really talking about data. And, you know, I met this product manager who was very kind of interested in looking at log files Mm -hmm. and extracting metrics from log files. And that sounded really interesting because you could all of a sudden, you know, extract these metrics from log files and come up with a higher level you know, you, you could sort of aggregate this up and really figure out how a customer is using the product, what are features which are being used, what are features which are not being used. And, you know, as simple as that sounds today, that actually wasn't very simple. Log files were, you know, zipped up on an app server and shipped the, the next day onto these sort of sort of central hubs and we had to unzip them. And then we essentially would move them over to HDFS and then be able to have, have to run like a big job on top of it, extract metrics and you know, very, very prone to failure. And if something failed, somebody would literally have to like go put like, a, you know, re put a disc somewhere, extract it and sort of give us a file. Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, very, very different from kind of what we have today where you would install a front end tracking tool and, you know, 
mix panel or amplitude or heap will sort of do this out of the box and you have a web UI and you can slice and dice, you know, extremely sort of different of, you know, we were doing it off like backend log data. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in my four years over there, I think towards the end of it, we sort of got our first cloud era Hadoop cluster. It was, you know, at that time we sort of moved over to Hive. But that was really my sort of second half of, of sort of Salesforce. At the beginning, we were actually quite, it's not that we weren't ahead. In general, data was at its early days and data engineering, data analytics weren't real job descriptions. I see. That state of non-existent data infrastructure, is that normal across the industry? And sure it was. Mm-hmm. Back then, you know, even if I went for interviews just to you know, explore and see what's out there, you know, the entire narrative for most of these companies was how do we get started with data? You know, how do we start to sort of figure out, you know, what is a data strategy? And this is, you know, even slightly before like reporting was, you know, this is more so like, how do we collect data? How do we, you know, what's the infrastructure needed to just collect, analyze, report, visualize? You had tools like Tableau, they existed for a while, but at that point, you know, you would predominantly, either these tools were very, very integrated into your application. So your own product would have some sort of analytics and it would surface it directly from the product. Or you would really be extracting data manually, loading it into these tools, you know, doing a sort of manual data dump, loading it into these tools and building out the app logic would go into sort of Tableau itself. And now all of a sudden, if you change the definition, you would have to go change it in 10 different places and mm-hmm. manually you know, export data. So it was kind of done in a very, very manual manner. And, you know, what interested me was at that, to be honest, was even less about the analytics at that point, but, you know, the no one was talking about the playbook and how to go do this, right? No one, you know, the playbook hadn't been written. And I guess why I was so much more interested in this compared to software engineering is the playbook on how to do software engineering was very clear. Like, this is how you do it. You know, for me, it wasn't that exciting once the playbook was written and I felt a lot more creative entering the sort of data space and just kind of figuring out, hey, on average, we spend 10, 20, 30 manual hours a month doing this. What can we do to automate parts of it? And, you know, I think there's kind of one thing which I kind of focused on pretty early on was the idea of how do we build something to automate it? Hmm. I remember at that point I was building schedulers. This is, you know, before, you know, you had airflow coming out of, Airbnb and I think at that point Uzi was just starting to take off but Uzi was really built on top of the sort of distributed framework you know or it was kind of built on top of Hadoop uh, and we had a lot of stuff which wasn't kind of using Hadoop right so you know a lot of the automation at that time we're building were around quality frameworks and around automation and that's kind of how I really got started with data engineering. Yeah absolutely thanks for sharing the context and what motivated you to build that playbook. And double clicking on that second part, so our job tenor, which says for you will actually build out the automation framework and the benchmarking slash visualization framework. According to my research, the automation framework helped automate the whole ETR process and allow data scientists to deliver insights rapidly and consistently. The benchmarking framework is capable of measuring and storing important system metrics and testing the performance. Would you mind going over some of the details of your contribution to these frameworks? You know, I think the sort of automation framework is really what was pretty cool because you know at that point we had a bunch of data scientists and each business unit of salesforce they sort of leaders wanted to kind of figure out what's happening how our customers 
using their products, their features, what should they focus more on, what should they focus less on? And you know, each business unit had a sort of assigned data scientist. And these data scientists now needed to be able to pretty dynamically go kind of figure out is this feature being used versus this feature, you know, we made this update, you know, kind of what's happening. So, you know, the old way of doing it was they would have to go to someone on the analytics team and that person would load the data into Splunk and then write some queries and extract, you know, write some regular statements to kind of extract some things and, you know, produce a CSV file and you would you know, play around with that CSV file, kind of count how many users sort of, sort of actually figured out week on week, month on month. And it was very, very, very sort of, you know, manual. And kind of what we did was we found a way to like extract these logs and put them inside something like HDFS. And then we could run a big script against them to kind of extract what we wanted. And we built a, you know, the automation framework, what it did is allow these data scientists to actually very easily through an XML file kind of define what they wanted to extract, what type of log files, if there was any sort of regular expressions. And from that, the framework would automatically generate big scripts, which would be able to take this instruction set and sort of carry that out. And then it would automatically run it against the cluster, pull those metrics out and push it back inside HDFS in a place where they can consume. So all of a sudden we push the power of processing back to the data scientist. So there is no sort of manual ad hoc step where we are actually, you know, having a physical person go in there and do something manually. That was a framework I was pretty proud of building. I see. And was there any, if you remember anything about like the business impact of the framework? I'm curious if you... Business impact of the framework was quite simple. It was the fact that the business units, you know, didn't have to wait an entire month to basically get analytics on what happened. And they were, you know, able to do it in a week, not a month, you know, in sort of today's day and time, it still sounds ancient, but to kind of, you know, remove parts of that manual ad hoc process and get it down to a week at that point was a big win. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that context. And I sort of remember at the end of every month, we had one week before we needed to get these reports out and it used to kind of be a struggle. I mean, we would always miss the deadlines. And then by the end of it, it had gotten to a point where, you know, we would have them out in a day or two. Yeah. It sounds like it's about saving a lot of time and improving productivity for this data analysis and scientists to deliver. Also, it allowed you to build on top of things, right? Like all of a sudden, you know, because you had an automatic manner to do something, you could build a layer of automation on top of this, right? You could, you know, now start to build dependencies on top of it and get into like building dependency graphs and eventually not just have the data going into HDFS, but being able to run ETL on top of it, ultimately updating dashboards, right? So it was kind of the idea of, hey, there's a, this automation doesn't end with just data extraction. This automation can go all the way up to like data reporting. Mm-hmm. That was the first time even that sort of thought and possibility, you know, entered my head that, you know, kind of leaving Salesforce, you know, sort of Salesforce was still a massive company and, mm-hmm. you know, it took time to have infrastructure provision. It took time to, you know, be able to try new things. So, you know, Towards the end of it, I was, I was starting to ask, you know, I was starting to wonder if we could kind of extend this much further along and really, you know, if there was an opportunity to basically go do this for someone slightly smaller, that we could actually take this to the next level. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks for providing context. And that's actually literature, but transition to my next question. So you spent about three years at Salesforce and you then decided to move to New York and you spent two years as a data science manager at Wink, which I 
Research and is a startup that builds a privacy-first personalization platform. So can you go over this career phase of yours? And also, what are some of the valuable lessons that you learned from building and managing a data team for the first time? Yeah, I sort of left Salesforce for two reasons. Number one, Salesforce wasn't going to let me go manage a team and, and go try new things. I was three years out of college and I was definitely not manager material at that point. And the second is most of my friends lived in New York back then and I would go, you know, every few months anyway. And I just wanted to, you know, get that New York bug out of my system and go live in the Big Apple for a few years. So I decided I'm going to leave San Francisco. I'm going to go for two years and I'm going to come back to the Bay Area after that. And I, I found Wing. I thought what they were doing is that they were sort of generating user-generated content. So being able to take, think of like, of like Pepsi, being able to launch a hashtag campaign all over the web. And Wing was able to sort of pull that data, sort of figure out what was high quality data, give it back to Pepsi, such that Pepsi could now use it inside their new campaigns. You know, user-generated content was going to drive a lot more engagement than, you know, than sort of typical ads. And I thought kind of being able to pull data from all of these different data sources, analyze it, you know, find what's the best one was a really kind of interesting problem. So sort of spent a few years over there. And, and I think that was really an opportunity very, very different from Salesforce, right? Like, you know, you're moving from, you know, one of the biggest companies in the Bay Area to a 150-person company with a tech team of about 30, 40 people and, you know, one person on the data team and having nothing there in terms of reporting, right? Kind of manually done, extracted. So, you know, it was really an opportunity to kind of take some of these things which I kind of learned at Salesforce and apply it and just actually see if they worked in the real world. You know, one of the things we did over there which made a lot of sense was we one of the first customers to adopt Looker and, you know, build out self-service reporting, which is kind of what I had always visualized as the end piece of, you know, all of the automation should be that, hey, can anyone answer their own questions? So, you know, that was a bet we took, which made a lot of sense. We actually also started doing something, which is how do you take data from all of your raw data sources and instead of having your self-service reporting build on top of your raw data we have a, a sort of model layer over there you know what do you want to call a data mod or something like that we sort of you know built a few across the one for sales one for product one for marketing and you know what that kind of allowed us to do is be pretty efficient and nimble in being able to sort of change metrics change reporting you know kind of move much quicker than what would have happened if you were building directly on top of raw data so at that point, you know, we didn't have DBT, we didn't, you know, there was no sort of framework for modeling, we were kind of doing this ourselves. We were using a homegrown scheduler, which I had written in, you know, a few hours and you know, we had deployed it on, on like Amazon. So it was really fun and hacky and it was the big bet we took at that time was Looker and Looker went on to become one of the leading BI companies. So I look back at, you know, the experience at Wing as, as something sort of really fun and by that time, Kind of done salesforce so i had some of the big company experience and you know had made a lot of mistakes managing a team and building a team and had kind of figured out what not to do and if i had to do it again what i wouldn't do yeah and two years later i was pretty ready to look for the next thing and to be honest at that point i thought i'm actually going to go back to san francisco so yeah. i kind of quit first and started interviewing in san francisco and yeah it just kind of ended it and then and all of a sudden sort of we work showed up. I just want to go over a couple of points that you just mentioned in your answer. So you mentioned you basically try to build almost like a 
data mesh layer, different module to serve different business units like sales, marketing, and product, right? How do you prioritize requirements from different units when you build out your data pipeline, your reporting capabilities to generalize to these different use cases? I mean, there's no kind of exact science to it, right? Like in some ways, it's kind of pretty obvious what are the most obvious metrics across the company, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, just based on what is leadership speaking most about, what is the biggest priority, you know, you kind of want to focus on those areas, right? And then figuring out with sales, figuring out with marketing, what do they really need to make more sales or what do they need to like drive more leads? Mm-hmm. And, you know, with a lean, nimble team, one of the things you can do is kind of move a little bit faster than typically a larger organization does. And I think the trick over there is to not be bogged down by you know, getting to that point of, I need this request. Can you, when is it going to get done? Or just add it to my backlog. You know, if you live in that world of always trying to play catch up, you're never, ever going to get ahead. Mm-hmm. It has to come from like understanding, you know, what is the business trying to do and what is going to make most sense of the business and trying to focus 80% of your efforts in that direction. Cause you're always going to have ad hoc requests. And for the most part, you know, how do you, have about 20% of your time spent on like serving those ad hoc requests, but 80% of the time you're kind of focused on what is going to be meaningful business critical work, which is kind of going to help you sort of get ahead. I think, you know, the one mistake all data teams make is for the most part, they're always playing catch up and they think that they're going to launch this new feature or move to this new scheduler or implement this new warehouse or BI tool. And all of a sudden they're going to not be playing catch up and that never, ever happens. It's not the technology, which is what causes a data team to play catch up. It's the fact that, you know, the, the sort of business is always going to think of a different way to want to ask a question. And it's not trivial from a data perspective to answer any sort of question in, in like a non-trivial way. Like, you know, the way you sort of fundamentally store and structure data is going to have implications in the type of questions you can answer. And all of a sudden the business can evolve and iterate much, much quicker then you can fundamentally restructure and reorganize your sort of data or or sort of migrate an engineering system. Yeah. Thanks for providing that insight into how, you know, data cannot just be a support function, but can also value added capabilities for the rest of the arc. Another note about what you said about the adoption of Looker, like a lot of tooling company always have to figure out a way to prove their value to uh, potential clients. And also like for fundamental question of view versus buy is always going to be around, right? And looking back at your time at Wings, what was the framework that you used to choose to partner with Looker? BI is the only area which we spend money. We built everything else. We built our own scheduler. We built our own ingestion pipelines. There was no modeling layer. We did it ourselves. The sort of value prop of having something pure self-service mm-hmm. and being able to have anyone in the company answer questions just made so much sense, right? Like, you know, hypothetically, if we took two companies and one of them, if they needed to ask the questions, they would ask an analyst and the analyst comes back two or three days later versus the other company where sales, marketing, finance can push a few buttons and go run a report. Which one do you think is kind of going to work faster, right? So, you know, we kind of started with that vision of how do we do that and then kind of work backwards and great. In order to do this now, what is everything we sort of need? Kind of work backwards and figure out the scheduler, figure out the modeling, figure that, figure that out. Actually, for us, ingestion was pretty simple because, you know, we didn't use a data warehouse. We weren't using Redshift, even though Redshift was there at that time. All we were doing was just taking a a slave on a sort of read replica of our production database and running a job 
to basically take all of our other databases and sort of dump that data inside one of the replicas and that was good enough mm-hmm. and also like what we go with a startup like looker because i assume there's probably other more like legacy bi to sure, you could go to tableau but you know the idea that tableau was built on this concept that you have tableau server and you pre-compute everything mm-hmm. and you pre-compute everything and you now all of a sudden you change the visualization it has to recompute everything you know we, we were kind of taking a bet that hey if you kind of you know we didn't have hundreds of millions of rows we probably had tens of millions of rows of data and you know if we can kind of structure everything such in a way that you know you can run a compute you can run an operation in sub minute then being able to run it live on a, a web app dashboard compared to you know a standalone server mm-hmm. which is pre computing data and that so we kind of took a bet on this idea that we can get to like sub minute response times on most of our queries and based on that answering questions in real time and being able to share a link to an actual dashboard and somebody sees the exact same dashboard instead of instead of them having to download tableau you know desktop and then open a report and ask for permissions and all of this stuff mm-hmm. one just seemed futuristic and the other one seemed like it was on its way down and uh, we sort of took a bet and that time it worked out yeah So it's really the combination of both the infrastructure needed on the BI layers as well as the ease of use and sort of yeah. Forth. I mean, at that point, what you, you had tools like you had free tools like Chario. Mm-hmm. You had you know massive enterprise tools like Tableau and Good Data and you know a few of them. You had some of the stuff on like the Hadoop ecosystem, which kind of did sort of reporting. But you know we weren't on the Hadoop ecosystem at all. We were very much on a Postgres instance was like big enough for us. So, you know, kind of based on, you know, where we were, it really made sense. And the simplicity of, you know, being able to have a web app as a modeling layer meant that it was far more accessible. Yep. You know, we, we thought like people are going to be answering questions on their phone, which never worked out. But, uh, you know, we love the idea of like portability. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that decision-making framework that you use to make tooling and building, you know, all these capabilities for Wink. So kind of stepping back into your career and you mentioned you spent about two years at Wink and you quit and then WeWork show up. Towards the end of 2016, you joined WeWork as the director of data engineering. You have scaled the data team from five to 100 plus across the New York, San Francisco and Tel Aviv offices in your first year there. So my question is twofold. First of all, what attracted you to join WeWork in the first place? And secondly, what were some of the unique challenges of scaling a global team? I mean, you know, at that point, I was planning to go back to San Francisco. I had gone interviewed. I was, I had accepted a job offer. I was like a second away from accepting one. I had my movers even like pack up my bags and ship it to San Francisco. And um, I was introduced to WeWork. I kind of went in there. And the first time I walked in, I kind of felt this electric energy, which I had never, ever felt anywhere. And walking into HQ for the first time was the most exciting feeling I had ever felt. And I knew right then that I wanted this more than I wanted anything else. And, you know, I kind of interviewed, I was quite torn, but, you know, I, I remember going for dinner with the CTO and he was kind of sort of convincing me to join. And at that point I knew I was going to join no matter what he paid me. And it was, you know, one of the easy, easiest decisions in the world. And just the idea of, you know, being able to take something like, you know, 
if you kind of think about tech, it's it's disrupted everything, right? Like taxis have been disrupted by Uber and music has been disrupted by Spotify. Real estate was one of the last few pieces to be disrupted. And WeWork was kind of offering that. And, you know, they were still relatively small. They had, you know, maybe a 70, 80, 90% tech team. Data was two, three people at best. We had one, we had two data engineers, one BI person, one data scientist. You know, that was it. That was the entire data team. It was very fun. And, you know, went in there and kind of being part of that exponential growth was a journey of a lifetime and, you know, extremely, extremely grateful for WeWork and, you know, and the journey and what I learned from it and, you know, the culture of being extremely together for a long time, we would work really hard at work, but after work, hang out with folks from WeWork and talk about WeWork at that time. So it was very all encompassing of a culture, but, you know, one of the things which was very much in the DNA is this idea that we're growing very quickly and. How do you hyper grow something at that speed? And, you know, we worked really hard and made it a scale. Like the data team went from two, three people there. And three years later, we were hundred people plus. And you know, the way you do that is by opening offices in different locations, attracting talent from other places. We like funded a bunch of conferences. We did a sort of bunch of aqua hiring. So, you know, every trick in the book to sort of be able to grow something that quickly. And at that time, what really helped was that the WeWork story was starting to become more mainstream. So it was probably much, much easier to hire that quickly then than it was, you know, when that ship started to sink. I see. The reason you draw is the combination of the energy that you step in at the workplace, as well as the market opportunity of real estate being disrupted by technology. Also, along with the early opportunity to grow the data team, given the early maturity of the function, right? And at some point, it was just fun. You know, I think part of why I kind of did a bunch of things in my career is they just sounded like the fun option to do at that point. Mm-hmm. The idea of doing something established and I think more stability is amazing for a lot of people. Just at that point in my career, like the idea of like, you know, not knowing what the outcome of something is and trying something out just to see what, what would happen. Mm-hmm. You know, those were the put in like another way, the idea of like winging something and like seeing what would happen was sort of really appealing. And I think you know, in terms of vision and, you know, what could be an opportunity, the sort of WeWork story was seemed like more fun than anything I could ever think of. Yeah, I see. That ideation of something interesting and fun happening in the future is the biggest pull for doing this. You then became the director of WeWork's data platform team in which you have strategized and bootstrap Marques, which is WeWork's first open source project around data lineage. Can you go over the origin and evolution of Marques as this was gradually adopted internally within WeWork and then externally across the data community. Sure. So, you know, Marquez is now kind of run by Julian, who was WeWork's principal engineer and Laurent, our CTO. And there's a company called Datakin around it. I believe they were recently acquired by Astronomer. You know, back in the early days, the idea of having metadata, you know, we were starting to have, you know, large teams and the idea of like metadata tracking was always, you know, an issue, which I think there was always a gap in the data ecosystem around metadata. And, you know, we had Julian, who's the guy behind Arrow and sort of Parquet, he was our principal engineer. And, you know, this is an area which he was really interested in and being one of the first few platforms, which is not only digital, but also physical, right? We also had buildings and we had IoT and we had, we obviously had pixels and sort of digital. So, you know, we were really thinking of the world where we would have 
uh, exponentially large data sets and being able to manage these data sets, you know, we needed a sort of solution around that. And that's really where the idea of sort of Marquez came from. And, you know, we were able to kind of fund it and build a team around it. But in reality, you know, you know, that team probably was around for about a year before the failed IPO. And as a result, luckily, you know, Laurent and Julian took the open source project and kind of built a company around it. But it had just started gaining adoption inside WeWork and probably, you know, it was kind of very, very early days. So I don't believe they would have had any real adoption outside of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was based on, you know, this sort of concept of like metadata being able to act as metadata being extremely critical in kind of figuring out your data catalog and sort of lineage and being able to track upstream, downstream dependencies and really have visibility into what are the core data sets across the company, which ones sort of can be trusted, which one can't. And, you know, I think that ignited the spark that is a kind of missing piece in the data ecosystem. So I'm super happy it sort of later had a successful story. I see. And also just kind of curious whether you still keep in touch with the evolution of that category, you know, data catalog, metadata management, given your experience working with Marquez in the early days, how do you see the current state of this category? I mean, very fundamentally, I sort of started a company called 5X. And what 5X does is, you know, we stitched together the modern data stack and kind of provide it as a service. So you don't have to go sign five, 10 different providers and figure out how to bring it together. Mm-hmm. We do it out of the box, right? So picture entering a credit card and five seconds later, you have Snowflake and DBT and Fivetran and BI and, you know, all of these things out of the box. So, you know, one of the core pieces over there is around metadata. Um, you know, it's something we're actively tracking and paying attention to and sort of figuring out what are the right metadata vendors we want to be able to support out of the box. That makes a lot of sense. So we were the director of WeWork's data platform team. So I assume that means building out the data platform for the whole organization. You have experience building data platform at for a little bit and then at Wing and now at WeWork. And you just kind of throughout all this experience, like what are some of the unique challenges of building a data platform? within an organization? Initially, I was focused on the data engineering side of things. And as the data engineering team started to scale, we kind of found a gap of one of the other areas needed was around the data platform. Mm-hmm. And what that kind of meant is that all the way from, you know, ingestion, storage, compute, you know, across all of these different layers, you know, given the fact that our ecosystem was so diverse that, you know, we had so many different types of data. We had teams which were focused on digital, we had ML teams. We had teams which were, you know, are physically around construction and we had IOT teams, which were, you know, putting sensors in buildings. So we didn't look at it as a one size fits all platform. Like, you know, today the data warehouse has become, you know, the default storage layer. We were very much intending of having flat files. You can run Hadoop on top of it, a big stream processing, real time pipelines, having a data warehouse for analytical purposes. So non-trivial problems around the scope of our data platform. And in reality, we sort of needed a piece of everything of batch of real time of sort of warehouse. You know, the idea was to kind of build a data platform team around it and be able to eventually support all of these sort of use cases we were kind of had. So the vision of the data platform really came from there. And we had sort of gotten the data engineering team to a point where it was kind of fairly stable. And you know, the next challenge at that point seemed to be around data platform. That's kind of how I was introduced to it. Yeah, thanks for pointing that context. Really try to view it in a way that generalizable. There was these different requirements as the growth of WeWork also improved. I suppose the diversity use case also increased exponentially as well. In 2019, you moved to China to help establish WeWork's Asia operations and focus on the hyper-growing Chinese market. 
First of all, how did this opportunity come about? And secondly, what did you learn about the way that Chinese tech culture operates? That's a great, great question. I was actually pretty burnt out towards my end of my stint in WeWork and I was actually going to leave and write a book on data and I was going to go scuba diving for a year and take a sabbatical. And a dear friend of mine convinced me over drinks that he was actually going to China and he was asking me questions on data. You know, a few drinks later, we decided that instead of quitting, I would go with him to China and kind of do this together. And, you know, it ended up being sort of journey of a lifetime. I never even visited China before I sort of committed to doing this. So it just happened very, very quickly. You know, I enjoyed every second and in sort of China, for those of you who don't know, there are two internets in the world. There's a global internet and there's the Chinese internet and they both don't really speak to each other. Mm -hmm. And they work kind of in a very different way. And there's been no successful American company which has taken its American stack and deployed it in China. The ones which have been successful are the ones which have actually rebuilt a version of their platform on the Chinese cloud, which is you know Alibaba or Tencent cloud. Mm-hmm. So it was an opportunity for us to go and do exactly that. Very, very sort of challenging, but uh, I think I was there for exactly one year. One of the things which is most memorable about building in China is we had this concept of something called China Speed, mm-hmm. which is you know kind of how do you build something four times faster with sort of quality in mind. I remember it took this sort of global team about a year and a half, two years to build the WeWork app. And I think China did it in like four months. They built a, their own version of the WeWork app with the entire feature set. It was just like much, much faster and that of, of like equally high quality. So, you know, in some ways, that's how I refer to the China ecosystem today. I'm just curious, like, what do you think that allows the Chinese engineers to move so fast? I think they're just hungry. They're just looking to be on the map. And I think, you know, in America, on some point, we got lazy and we got complacent. We got kind of happy kind of being at the top. And, you know, over there, you just have this sense, you know, we would come into the office on a Saturday or Sunday. I might have left my laptop or something like that. And you would see engineers working there all evening, all night. They were just hungry. I think that's the easiest way to sort of describe it. That's a really great way to, you know, to paint the picture of the work ethic that they have compared to us. There was something called like the China 996, right, which is... They work 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. six days a week. And in America, it's like 9 to 5, 9 to 5, 5 days a week. Mm-hmm. And you know, when we went there, we tried our level best to set a 9 to 5 culture. And the, re- the sort of reality of it is a lot of those engineers would ask for extra work at the end of 9 to 5, 5 because they, weren't, you know, they were looking to work harder. And you know, we went in there kind of thinking that we we're going to add balance and structure and you know, we're going to be the heroes. But in reality... You know, I think part of the 996 culture, I think a lot of it might come from top down from companies mm-hmm. and that's not a good thing, but, you know, some part of it is a sort of bottom up phenomena where, you know, people just want to work harder and find success. Mm. I see. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that context. That's really going to illustrate how we can learn from, from the China speed. So in the summer of 2020, you took a sabbatical and you moved to Bali, Indonesia. This is also the time when you conceptualize the idea of FireX. Can you walk over this couple of few months of your life and also the fighting story of Fox? You know, taking some time off, I didn't really move to Bali. I went on a 10 day vacation to Bali that happened to be day one of COVID and China shut down so quickly. I never got to pack my apartment. I moved to Bali with a small handbag <laughs> and uh, Bali kind of became home. I decided to leave WeWork. I took a few months sort of transferring that off. I took a few months off and, you know, I actually started a company first called 5X Wellness which was working with wellness companies and helping them and building a segmentation product for wellness companies to allow them to personalize the app for the different segments of their audience. And that didn't go anywhere. 
And I figured I would start, you know, taking everything I learned in my career in the data space. And I would start teaching companies how to structure data teams and, you know, what's the modern data stack, how to set it up, all of these things. And I, I kind of did that for six, seven months. And literally, I think I sold like four courses. I was trying my level best to kind of build a business out of this. And I was failing miserably at it. And I happened to take a trip to Jakarta and I knew no one in Jakarta. And, you know, once I got there, I realized I had a friend from college. We met and he introduced me to one of his buddies who was a serial entrepreneur. His name's Karan. And Karan was just coming out of his previous startup and he loved kind of what I was building. But, you know, he said he's not going to get involved unless we come and speak to 100 companies. So Karan flies back to Bali. So we speak to 13 companies and 12 of them had the data problem. And Karan looks at me and he's like, we don't need to speak to any more companies, we're good. But I have one piece of advice for you. And that's no one wants to learn from you. Everyone wants you to do it for them. I fought that hard. Man. Well, I'm not trying to build a consulting company. And we're not trying to, I really don't want to build a consulting company. Like, I don't care what you want to do. Like, If you, you, know, you need to find success in this, you need to find a way of doing this without it being consulting. And that's when we really started. You know, We built this automatic interview process. We're able to hire, you know, one weekend we had 50 people who applied and we hired five of them. We hadn't interviewed them. They had to do this like online test and they had like six hours to like ingest data, model it, structure it, build reporting, kind of what a data engineer actually does on a day-to-day level. And we kind of hired these people and we taught them our program instead of teaching it to sort of companies. And then we took these people and we embedded them into companies and we ran this playbook and it turned out much better than we thought. That's kind of how it started. And from there, we, you know, we had the idea of you know, all these companies need a platform. So can we be a single platform which provides the modern data stack, right? You can pick and choose your vendors and it kind of stitches it together for you. And on top of that, how do we provide a sort of talent layer? And obviously what 5X is today is extremely different from sort of what we started on nine months ago. But that's the kind of story of how we got started. It just sounds like it took a lot of twists and turns and iteration for you and your co-founder to settle into these ideas. A lot of trial and a lot of conversation with these different companies about their data needs in order to settle into that you know, specific pain points. And even your point about company doesn't need you to teach them how to do things. You actually need to do that for them, which really explains like how big of a problem the data platform or their strategy or their engineering need is for all this organization. I've been doing some research on the Fax website, and there was a great video on the main website explaining Fax that's data in a box. And basically, Fax is the modern data stack as a managed service that enables companies to answer business questions without having to worry about building data infrastructure or bringing in the right data engineering teams. Why do you think that companies need a managed data stack? There's this movement happening called the modern data stack, and you know that is allowing all companies in the next few years are going to have to figure out where the customers are coming from across the campaigns, what the different segments, what's customer lifetime value, what's engagement, how do you optimize operations, how do you automate some of your financial dashboards, who are your best sales rep? You know, these are the type of questions companies are going to need to answer. And if they're unable to answer these questions, the sort of reality is they probably won't exist five, 10 years from today because the competition will just out-execute them. So, you know, when we think about answering these questions, you know, the old way of doing it, what we were doing in Wing and Salesforce is no longer applicable because your average company today has got between 10 to 12 different sources of data. 
So, you know, you need to be able to ingest this data, you need to store it, you need to model it, structure it, report it, you know, get into advanced decision-making, push this back into other tools, do A-B testing, do machine learning. And, you know, all of these sort of different use cases are today what we kind of call the sort of modern data stack, right? And, you know, unfortunately today, each of these use cases is done by a separate company and each of them is a billion dollar company. So if you want to set this whole stack up, you got to go sign 10 different contracts mm-hmm. and six months stitching it together. Mm-hmm. So, you know, very simply why you need a managed data stack is kind of, kind of what 5X does, which is give you the data stack out of the boxes. If you don't do it, you know, unless you're like 10% of the companies like Facebook, Apple, Google, for the remaining 90% of companies, just too inefficient. So you really want to go, you know, spend a few hundred thousand dollars extra, spend six months longer to do it, and then still have a pretty high chance of doing it incorrectly, or do you just want something out of the box and really focus on the business value? And, you know, that's fundamentally what we exist for is how do we become, you know, the de facto platform behind the modern data stack for 90% of companies. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. What you say is the tooling within the modern data stack has become fragmented and it can be hard to know what the right option is for their needs. And with a service like Fax, you know, company can delegate that decision to have that stack for them, right? Like I said, 90% of the company actually need that so they can focus more on their business allocations. Yeah. You mentioned a little bit earlier about the fact that, you know, Fax also have data engineers and you train them on the modern data stack, it's basically teaching these engineers everything ranging from, you know, ingestion to warehousing to transformation to BI, et cetera. Can you go over 5X process of sourcing, interviewing, and onboarding these engineers? We first built this process around India. We were doing about 500 interviews a week. So we had about 90% automated. We first do a take-home test. From there, we have a six-hour practical test. From there, we have a live interview with one of our engineers. We do psychometric testing, and then we get to offers. It's quite a intensive interview process. We're now doing this in like nine countries. So we're no longer just doing it in India. We're doing it around South America, Southeast Asia, parts of Africa. And, you know, we're building a sort of global task force. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what we've actually done is, you know, we, we still offered sort of dedicated engineers who we can embed into a company, but we have this new concept called engineering pods. Mm-hmm. Where we can take three engineers and put them together on a pod. And then a pod can support multiple companies. Right. And, you know, really what a port is, it's a very elastic supply of data talent. So, you know, a company can get access to a port and a port comes with, let's say, 30 engineering hours of support per week. And, you know, if a company needs to sort of scale up, scale down, it's completely elastic, right? You can kind of add a second port, add a third port, take more capacity in one port. And, you know, ports are infinitely customizable. So we can have a port with an engineer from America, from Africa and India, and you have 24 hour support or, you know, three engineers from America and you have localized support, or you can have more junior engineers and it's more cost-effective, or you can have senior engineers and it's it's probably amazing for like hotfixes or like architectural stuff. So, you know, it's kind of based on this concept that we're moving into an age where companies care about output. They don't care about how it gets done. Mm -hmm. And with the board model, we can really focus on adding true business value in a very kind of elastic manner Mm -hmm. and really... You know, one of the big problems about engineering has always been that very often hiring, managing and deploying engineers doesn't match the speed of what a company needs, right? A company needs something now, but it's going to take us three months to hire someone and kind of get started, right? And so you were never able to match needs and supply. 
And mm-hmm. kind of with this model, we were building one of the first true elastic models of supply around data talent. Mm-hmm. That's a very interesting model that you mentioned to satisfy some of the needs of your customers. And also in terms of your just fighting customers in general or FireX, I'm curious, like what are some of the hurdles you have to go through to fire some of the early adoptives of FireX? It happened very organically. We really started posting a lot of content on the modern data stack on where it's going and how it's heading. And we, we got a lot of traction off that, right? Like we got our first few customers off our videos or maybe of people who saw our videos and then referred someone else. So it really came in a very kind of organic, fluid way around that. We actually, till date, have been very, very little outbound. It's mainly been organic. See, so the content really, the one that draws attraction to kind of exactly. your services in your website. You mentioned a bit earlier that, you know, FireX like, sort of stitched together these different vendors that make up the modern data stack. So I'm curious, like, how do you go about choosing the right vendors to partner with? You know, I think there are more and more categories added every time, right? And what's becoming happening is in some of the core categories, like ingestion, like warehousing, like modeling, like BI, the sort of best-in-class vendors are becoming more and more established. So it's pretty simple, you know, ingestion, five francs, six billion dollar player and Snowflake and DBT and, you know, in BI, you have a lot more options and front-end collection, you have a bunch of options. As more time goes by, there are you know additional categories coming up, right? Sort of this sort of metadata is one of them. Reverse ETL is another. Decision making is another. Data mesh, metric store. You know these are kind of the next few categories, right? So kind of figuring out, you know, in these categories, which sort of providers are really going in the direction which we believe the modern data stack is going, and being able to partner with them. But in reality, you know, we're not trying to just offer one partner for like metadata, one partner for reverse ETL. You know, ultimately, we're trying to build the app store for the modern data stack, right? Like any reverse CTL provider will be able to come and offer their services and it will be fully integrated into it. So we might start with one or two, but the vision is hmm. how do we create the app store for the modern data stack? Yeah, I love that concept. Really good vision. We put a concept that you can think about for any listeners. Finally, as you already mentioned, you know, the video is actually the content that attracted a lot of customers into your, your website and your services. And I got a chance to watch a couple of great videos of you explaining what Fox does, as well as, you know, raising awareness about the company, various topics ranging from view versus buy, how to look for first data high, what's the right time to hire data team, et cetera. So what does your video production process look like from choosing a topic to actually like delivering it that can engage the viewers? In general, I try and record once a week. I, I took a few months off when I was in South America, but I'm back to it. So you start seeing videos again very soon. You know, once a week, wherever I am, you know, my assistant finds a videographer to come spend an hour with me. And, you know, when they show up more often than not, I don't have a topic. And all of a sudden, as soon as they leave, I have five topics, but I can never think of a topic on the time. But somehow in that one hour, we'll be able to shoot a three, four, five minute video. Once we shoot it, we have a team who takes it, they're able to clean it up, add captions, add some cool animations, and then post it onto our social channels and everything else. And we're sort of very, very excited to kind of keep doing that. If anything, we're just going to accelerate that. We're going to have, apart from videos, we're going to have some thought leadership pieces. And we're sort of being like podcast a week at this time. Mm-hmm. We have a fairly aggressive podcast schedule. So between this, you know, we're really trying to raise awareness of what the modern data stack is and how 5X can give you the modern data stack out of the box. Yeah, absolutely. Sounds like a lot of exciting initiatives that 5X is working on. 
for the rest of this year and even next year as well, right? And it's a lot about education and, yeah, like you said, raising awareness about what you do for ninety percent of organizations that need to get a, a managed uh, data stack. Yeah. So, Tarish, at this part of the conversation, I want to move into the final closing segment. I'm just going to ask you three rapid fire questions so we can give quick answers for the listeners. Number one, name three people in the broader data community whose work you admire. I really respect the CEOs of Fivetran, George and Taylor. We saw them kind of build Fivetran from the early days and kind of have seen that progression and they've been really inspiring. I think I'm really inspired by Prokalpa, CEO of Asklin, you know, in terms of the content they produced and just, you know, taking it to the next level and very, very inspiring to see what sort of level they're playing at as a content game. And then I think just sort of Snowflake CEO Frank, just on what he's been able to do, you know, I think the biggest IP of tech history was sort of Snowflake and it happens to be a data company. So that's extremely kind of inspiring, I think, for the data community. Fabulous. Secondly, name one book that you would recommend for people to cultivate an entrepreneurial mindset. I actually haven't ever read any entrepreneurial book probably, but I do read a lot of book and I think, you know, books on like peak performance really kind of inspire me. Some of my favorite books are Stealing Fire by sort of Kotler mm-hmm. or maybe Robin Sharma's 5am Club. Yeah, that's a great one for sure. And then finally, imagine they can send out a single tweet to all the early stage data engineers on Twitter. What would you tweet about? The rise of the data engineer. I think I would remind them that we are just entering an era where the sort of data engineer is becoming more and more mainstream, more and more. I think data is a bridge between engineering and product. And that bridge is really built by the data engineer. So it's, you know, it's becoming one of the most important roles inside a company. And really what I would tweet to them is get ready for the rise of the data engineer. I think that's a great way to end our conversation. Taros, I really enjoyed talking with you today, learning about your educational background in Carnegie Mellon, how you become the first data engineer and building out the data infrastructure at Salesforce, how you moved to New York and managed the data team at Wink, your journey with WeWork, scaling up the data team, contributing to my case and working in the uh, WeWork's China operation, as well as your current journey with FireX from building out the modern data stack as a managed service, hiring data engineers, choosing the right vendors, and as well as putting good content to educate companies about their data strategy. So uh, be sure to include everything that we talk about in the conversation today into the show notes so our listeners can have a chance to take a look, follow Tarosh, watch some of his video, and learn more about facts as well as general awareness about some of the latest content about the modern data stack. So yeah, Tarosh, I really enjoyed it and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much, James, for having me on the show and hopefully we were able to provide some value to your listeners. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.